The Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for February 2021. It's still a mix of snow and sleet in my part of the world, but there are some early signs of spring and along with the warmer days, some faint hopes of getting out of lockdown and seeing family and friends. I know I'm not alone. We're all looking forward to getting back to some semblance of normal while also keeping a close eye on the pandemic. I think that's the approach people are taking with TCTMD as well. Users are definitely still interested in the big COVID-19 stories and our daily dispatch continues to be popular. But we've also seen readership ticking back up on stories that have nothing to do with the pandemic. Here's a sample of some of the stories making waves on TCTMD this month and some of the conversations the TCTMD journalists did to pull those together. We've heard for years that an update to the ACC AHA chest pain guidelines was imminent, but its release has been pushed back several times. One of the contentious topics, I gather, is what role CT angiography should play in chest pain workup, given the entrenched role of stress testing in this population and the revenues that brings. It's been almost five years since the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, made CTA a first-line test. European guidelines in 2019 also threw support behind the modality. Only in the US has the decision continued to lag. All of that passed through my mind when a press release from the Society of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography crossed my desk earlier this month. In it, they announced that the Society had released an expert consensus document on the use of coronary CTA. In the course of writing this up for TCTMD, Yael Maxwell confirmed that the ACC AHA document is now anticipated for May of this year, which would coincide with the 2021 ACC meeting. As an aside, that was also blockbuster news this month that the ACC, already pushed back to May, would now be a fully virtual meeting and not a hybrid, as hoped. But I digress. Here's part of Yael's conversation with the senior author of this new SCCT expert consensus document, Harvey Hecht, of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. He highlighted some of what's new in this advice. Up until now, CTA has really been recommended in the setting of patients who do not have established coronary disease. And we have expanded it in this document to patients who do have established coronary disease, which is a big increase in the catchment of people who are eligible for CTA. And we have also stated very clearly that CTA is appropriate as the first line test for establishing patients for evaluating patients. Mm -hmm. That had never been as explicitly stated before. Another major area which represents a novel application is when you consider that there are an extraordinary number of chest CTAs that are done to rule out aortic dissection and to rule out pulmonary embolus. And these tests are rarely positive for the diagnosis for which they were ordered, but yet the patients have symptoms. They have chest pain, they have shortness of breath, 
and coronary disease is a very likely contributor since no more than 10% of these patients have either aortic dissection or pulmonary embolus. And all you have to do is to gate the study electrocardiographically and you can evaluate the coronaries without additional radiation, without additional contrast. All the information is in the field of view. So we're saying that it's appropriate to evaluate the coronary arteries by gating the studies in all aortic dissection and aortic follow-up studies, aortic evaluation studies, and in pulmonary embolus patients in older patients, men over the age of 45 and women over the age of 55. And that's really a new application. Yael also spoke with Leslie Shaw of Wheel Cornell Medical College in New York. Shaw is also on the ACC AHA Writing Committee, giving her some unique insights. Have a listen. It wasn't meant to be competitive with the ACC AHA guideline, although, you know, certainly I think if that had come out sooner, then this one probably might not even have come to fruition, except, and it might have been a, a totally different focus than it was. What do you mean totally That's, different focus? Well, it probably would have gone less around the comparisons to the other modalities uh-huh. and more focusing on uh, the what CT is uh, capable of. If Yael's story hints at news to come, a piece by Laura McEwen this month speaks to one that may be finally fading from view. As you'll know if you're a regular reader of TCTMD or have listened to past episodes of this podcast, the now-famous Katsanos meta-analysis of late 2018 suggested that paclitaxel-based balloons and stents for peripheral artery disease were associated with increased all-cause death compared with uncoded devices at two years and beyond. Ever since that paper was published, a raft of observational studies, trial updates, missing data now found, and the resulting meta-analyses have largely failed to replicate those findings. The latest of these studies stems from three years' worth of data among more than 10,000 patients included in the U.S. Veterans Health Administration. Here, as research led by Antonio Gutierrez of Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, reported in JAHA, investigators found no difference in survival whether patients were treated with a paclitaxel versus non-paclitaxel-based device. For the subset of patients with critical limb ischemia in this cohort, survival was worse overall than that seen in the non-CLI patients, but again, no difference was seen according to device type. Here's some of Laura's conversation with Gutierrez. You know, I do let patients know what came up because the FDA did make an announcement, as you know, but it's really comforting to be able to tell them that, hey, every randomized trial trial, the most recent data that's been published shows that there is no difference, and all the real-world data, right? Because oftentimes, you know, randomized control trials are the perfect setting. Well, as close as the perfect setting we could get, right? And oftentimes it does not reflect the patient population we actually use it in because uh-huh. um, oftentimes those patients, and PAD patients, especially the critical limb ischemia, are often sicker, and they would probably maybe not have qualified into some of the studies. Uh-huh. And now it's really good to know that... Um, the real evidence also supports the fact that there is probably no difference, no association, or that paclitaxel coded devices are not really associated with an increased risk of mortality.
As the COVID-19 pandemic drags on, a growing number of physicians are voicing concerns that amid ongoing economic hardship, job losses, and mental health setbacks, some of our bad habits may be worsening. It's timely, then, that a study addressing the impact of smoking, alcohol intake, and use of recreational drugs on atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, should be published in the journal Heart. As researchers from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston report, when compared with patients with no premature ASCVD, patients who did have premature ASCVD were significantly more likely to use tobacco, alcohol, cocaine, amphetamines, and cannabis. Effects of different drugs were additive, such that polysubstance use had a graded response. Patients using four or more substances had a roughly nine times higher risk of premature atherosclerotic disease. Moreover, the number of patients using at least two, three, or four recreational drugs might surprise you. Investigators found that approximately 11% of patients with premature ASCVD were using four or more recreational drugs, while nearly one-third were using two or more. Mike spoke with Salim Varani at Baylor, who had this to say. There's generally a correlation, right? And if you're smoking, you are more likely to be using alcohol, you're more likely to be using these illicit drugs. So what you will notice is that Despite adjusting for alcohol and tobacco, the association for these illicit drugs stays there, which means that there is independent association with the illicit drugs, mm-hmm. even when one adjusts for tobacco as well as alcohol. And the same holds true for tobacco and alcohol as well. So each one of these categories, there are three major categories, right? Tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drugs. Mm-hmm. And when we do the analysis for alcohol in fully adjusted, they are adjusted for tobacco and illicit drugs. When we look at illicit drugs, they are adjusted for tobacco and alcohol. So, this, But even when we adjust for these other substance categories, there's still a two to three-fold risk. And that risk is, you know, comparable to traditional risk factors we have, like hypertension, diabetes, and, and, and cholesterol. So it's pretty much like a traditional risk factor that we should use when it comes to tobacco, alcohol, and drug use. And we should routinely measure these when patients who have premature cardiovascular disease and are coming to the hospital. And as you know, though that's been a recommendation. One of the evolving stories we've been following closely from the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic has been the role of abnormal coagulation and multi-organ clotting as a component of this viral illness, not to mention the flurry of research seeking to understand when and how to intervene, with what drugs, and at what dose. Todd Neal has been the TCTMD reporter, following this most closely, probably, in our daily dispatch, although I think every journalist on the team at, at some point has covered some of this research. To get a sense of what some of the leading minds are thinking in terms of the role of full-dose anticoagulation and the timing of that, you'll have to check out Todd's latest feature story. The title of that is The Right Anticoagulation Dose in COVID-19? Final answer remains elusive. Todd's story should bring you up to speed for now, but with the caveat that this field moves fast, we're still waiting on a number of key trials to report outcomes. The latest from the international platform trial that triggered Todd's feature earlier this month combines patients from the ATTACK, REMAP-CAP, and ACTIVE-4A trials, representing several hundred sites across five continents. 
Back in December, we learned from this research that enrollment of ICU-level patients had been paused for futility, with investigators also seeing signals of harm. A month later, however, January 22nd, another NIH press release had more positive news. In patients who did not require ICU-level care when they entered the study, a therapeutic dose of anticoagulation decreased the need for organ support, regardless of D-dimer level, and there was a trend toward less mortality. A slide set with those results has been put up online, which you can find in Todd's story, but the full results as yet are unpublished. So what's driving these different findings? Todd put the question to Jeffrey Berger of NYU Langone Health, New York, New York, who had this to say. I think it's really about timing. I think that patients who are in the severe state, it may just be too late, right? They already have so much, whether it's inflammation, immune dysfunction, maybe microthrombosis, that sort of the cat is out of the bag, that it's a little bit too late to just be able to use a high-dose blood thinner to help them. I think in patients who are not there yet, these data suggest that there, there is less requirement of ICU level of care. So I, I think this would suggest that we, we need to start using these types of therapies earlier. The Society for Thoracic Surgeons annual conference is the latest we've covered in the virtual meeting era, and it was one of the last we attended in person in 2020. This year, TCTMD's Caitlin Cox covered an analysis out of Duke University, led by Oliver Jawitz, explaining why outcomes among women undergoing cabbage surgery are typically not as good as men's. In a data set of more than one million people, the authors say their analysis confirms what has been seen in smaller studies, even after controlling for things like patient age and body size or surgeon-level factors like region and volumes. Caitlin spoke with Joanna Chickway of Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles, who was not involved in the analysis, but who summed up the findings and offered some theories as to why this might be the case, as well as some possible solutions. Have a listen. I think it's just a fantastic example of um, really high-quality research that's nailed a problem that's kind of been staring at us in the face for years, but we haven't taken the time to look at in depth. And the surprising thing is really the extent to which women are underserved by cardiac surgery right now. So there are three things that the researchers identified really clearly. Mm. And it's that the gold standard approach, um, we're we're simply not using it as much in women as we do in men. Um, We don't use um, the main artery to do a, a coronary bypass. We don't do a complete coronary bypass and we're not using multiple arteries when we could. There are several potential reasons for that, but it's not surprising that the outcomes that women experience with coronary bypass surgery, it's the commonest operation we do. Over a million people in this study um, are just not as good as they are in men. Yeah. Like, could there be any valid reasons why these were used less often in women or is it just, um, for lack of a better word, inexcusable? I see there are some valid reasons. So I think we've sort of had a really intense focus on short-term outcomes for our patients. So some short-term outcomes are really important. So whether the patient's alive at 30 days is is clearly of prime importance. However, it's also incredibly important whether that patient's alive in one year, 
five years and ten years and feels well, has got a normal quality of life. Yeah. And so I think surgeons that are worried about some of the other outcomes that we focus on, such as how well the wound heals, how quickly the patient gets out of hospital, are less likely to choose techniques in women that might make those short-term outcomes a little worse, even if it's at the expense of better long-term survival. So, so that would be one. I think yeah. it's a concern with making sure that the wound heals well, which might explain why a surgeon chooses to do a less involved procedure at the expense of potentially better long-term outcomes. Let me wrap up today's episode with a public health reminder of sorts. As you all know by now, cardiac admissions dropped precipitously in the first phase of the COVID-19 lockdown. Now there are continued signs that despite all the efforts that have gone into reminding patients that they must seek help for cardiac symptoms, that hospitals are safe, that there are plans in place to take care of non-COVID emergencies, it seems patients are still staying home. This month I covered a paper published in Jack with Chris Gale of the University of Leeds as senior author. The study looked at the drop in heart failure and MI admissions during the first and second lockdowns in the UK. It found that although hospital admissions returned to almost 95% of their original levels between these two waves, numbers started to drop again just ahead of the second lockdown, when cases were spiking anew. That raises questions as to what the pattern will look like as the UK moves out of its third lockdown now. I spoke with Gail in early February, who had this to say. This shape is different from the first one. It, it's gradual. It drops to the same level. We haven't got data from the last six weeks, but it was reaching the limits or, or, or the levels of the first lockdown. Who knows? It may go lower than that. But it looks uh, as though it's more persisting and chronic. If you were going to ask me uh, if I could predict what's going to happen now that we're in our uh, sort of third uh, lockdown, well, I would hope one thing and, uh, and expect another. I would hope that there isn't a decline, um, but I think I would expect that the public behaviour continues, and that is because fear, people are fearful of coming to hospital because of worries around catching the contagion, um, that even when they have medical emergencies such as heart attack and heart failure, um, they elect to stay at home. Um, and so I think we will see going forward that this does not recover abruptly and that it um, lingers to a certain extent. Yeah. And I suppose that's why it's so important that uh, we push out that public health message that you know, medical emergencies do not stop during a pandemic and heart attacks are an exemplar of a medical emergency that we know, um, if not treated, result in loss of life and if not chronic long-term conditions current heart attack, stroke, and heart failure. That's it for the February edition of Heart Sounds. February is heart month, of course, so I hope you've all been able to keep your own hearts intact through all these hard times. The AHA's Go Red for Women campaign was also this past month. 
Our new senior clinical editor, Mamas Mamas, wrote his first over-the-wire blog for TCTMD, addressing the Go Red efforts and whether they are making a difference. I hope you'll check it out. As I continue to try to strike the right balance on TCTMD between COVID-19 updates as they pertain to the heart, as well as the advances in cardiology that are our typical bread and butter, please reach out and let me know how I'm doing. I'd also love it if you were to fill out TCTMD's annual survey so we can get a better idea of what's working for you and what's not. You can find a link to the survey in our weekly newsletters or at tctmd.com slash user-survey-2021. Thanks for tuning into Heart Sounds. See you next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.